Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today begins his book thus. This is a book about the taste of place and the styles and stories of cooking that define it. It is a book about how people talk about their lives and their histories through the stories that flow from field, marsh, kitchen, and table. This is a book about tradition, the human process of making sense and discovering invention through experience, lived, remembered, imagined. It is a book about how the taste of place expresses a love of place. This book originates in a particular place, but it resonates with foodways far beyond its borders. The place in question is the eastern shore of Virginia. Those are the first words of Bernard L. Herman's new book, A South You Never Ate, Savoring Flavors and Stories from the Eastern Shore of Virginia. Bernard L. Herman is the George B. Tyndall Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Folklore at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He has previously published on numerous wide-ranging topics from the artist Thornton Dial to the development of the townhouse in the early American city. And given when this podcast drops, it's particularly appropriate that his 2012 Thanksgiving essay for the magazine Severe was anthologized in the collection of the year's best food writing. Bernie Herman, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let's talk a little bit about the eastern shore of Virginia. Um, first of all, where is it? Because a lot of, as you indicate, a lot of people have never heard of it, don't know where it is. And how would you define the eastern shore? How do you think about it? Well, the eastern shore of Virginia is a peninsula that is roughly 14 miles off the coast of Virginia. It's flanked on one side by the Atlantic Ocean and its barrier islands, uh, and then marshes, and then high land, and then to the west by the Bay. Uh, it's a place where you really can't see land on across the bay. Uh, so we are really away from the part of Virginia, physically connected to Maryland. And most folks will know the eastern shore of Virginia from the Chincoteague Ponies or Chesapeake National Park or maybe Cape Charles. Uh, but it's about 70 miles long where we are and about uh, three to five miles wide. So you, you describe it basically it's an island uh, in in more than one in more than one way. It works like an island. It's an island as far as Virginia is concerned, um, but it is a place that really operates with what I think of as island etiquette. Folk each other very well, um, and they have long, long connections, uh, some stretching back for centuries. Yeah, let me tell you a story about that. It's my favorite story about the Eastern Shore. Um, it's always funny, the mainlanders, Virginians, always regard, even very old FFV families, always regard the Eastern Shore with a certain amount of suspicion, which is funny, because a lot of people on the Eastern Shore have been in Virginia longer than even some of the FFVs over on the mainland. Uh, my friend John Pagan uh, wrote an uh, award-winning book and Orthwood's Bastard. 
which I highly recommend. We'll have to have him on the podcast sometime. He uh, gave it to a friend of his uh, who's a judge in Eastville, near where I believe you live on the Eastern Shore. And as he's flipping through it, he sees that Anne Orthwood's the, the literal, the, t- the, the two characters in the title, Anne Orthwood's son was eventually defended by a, a man in, 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 in court in the 1680s. And he said, that's extraordinary. There's an old gentleman who argues law in front of me who has the same name. And he's in his 70s or 80s, and yet uh, I, I, he still argues. He's sharp as a tack and very good lawyer. I'll have to ask him. And when he did, he said, oh, yes, direct descendant. So someone in that family had been practicing law on the Eastern Shore since the 1680s. Just for an Amer- for a Euro- for an English person, that's odd, uh, let alone for an American. Well, it's uh, not unique in that corner of the world. Um, there's Major Jones, uh, who lives up on uh, Bayford Neck, who is descended from Major Jones, uh, who <laughs> appears in the 1640s, uh, or Jack Robbins, the former sheriff, uh, who is descended from a whole line of sheriffs that go back uh, to the 1600s. But there are also all the African-American I was families. Gonna, I was going to get to that, because Ira Berlin and his whole study of creolization, the sort of the first sort of the African-Americans over the first 75 years, a lot of the free people of the Eastern Shore have been free for a very long time. Uh, That's true. Um, In many ways, uh, since we're in 1619 celebration or uh, maybe recreation. Commemoration. um, Is is as we look at these histories and um, up and through the 70s, I argue, is an legal understanding of how slavery worked uh, on the eastern shore of Virginia was very much in flux. Mm -hmm. Uh, And many enslaved Africans were treated as indentured servants uh, and so gained a measure of uh, freedom at the end of their terms. By the 1680s, though, that had changed. Mm -hmm. The gate is beginning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that has been our standard understanding of it until, until maybe uh, a last month. Um, but that the uh, that things have began to change. The door closes in the 1680s and is nailed shut with the 1705 laws. Uh, that's correct. But you have these people who are obviously, and we also know from court records. Thank God, uh, the Eastern Shore was unable to send its records to. Um, Richmond to be burned in 1865. So we know about things like uh, black and white marriage um, on the Eastern Shore. Uh, we know that inter- there are interracial couples. Uh, we know this is, um, I wouldn't say, maybe it's not approved, maybe it's not common, but it happens. It's there all over the place. Um, it explains much of American history when you start to understand things like that. that the, and that the Eastern Shore is like a little, it's like a Petri dish, which has been around for a long time. Um, and all these things have been mixing around in it in this unique place. Absolutely. Not the least of which were the uh, customs and interactions with indigenous peoples. Yes. Uh, we tend to forget that. Uh, but those presences are still very much there, particularly um, in the foods that people prepare mm-hmm. and how they prepare them. And of course, as you know, where I grew up, I grew up with 
my, many of my classmates were in, in some of the strange of uh, what the sociologists uh, inelegantly refer to as a tri-racial isolate. Um, uh, but and many of them were descended from the actually not from South Jersey uh, natives, but from actual Delmarva uh, from Eastern Shore natives, uh, the Nanticokes and so on. So um, this is one of the reasons, I mean, as you know, where I grew up in southern New Jersey, there's a lot of strange similarities. And yet I think my interest in the South began as a five-year-old being driven down to Chincoteague and then even go, you know, going on the Eastern Shore and saying, huh, this is a lot like where I live, which is not that far away as the crow flies, but it's very different. You know, the pines are different. Some of the smells are different. I had this feeling of like, but like different. It was just things were cocked a little bit like 45 degrees in just an interesting way. Um, I would agree with that. Um, I did a lot of work at one time in South Jersey and really found it a place that was very familiar in certain ways and very different and in others. But the connection of people to the land there uh, is something that is shared at a really bedrock level. How did you come to the Eastern Shore? Uh, we arrived in early 1950s. Um, my grandfather was an architect Bay and had a number of jobs on the Eastern Shore. Um, he hired my father as an architect um, and we lived over there because in those days you had to take the ferry back and forth to get to the eastern shore of Virginia from the mainland uh, or the western shore mm. uh, and so we were there for a few years um, and then moved back across to Norfolk which is where my mom was from mm -hmm. and then after that we um, uh, sold the house or sold our farmhouse in uh, the uh, early 60s, I think. Uh, and then after uh, we continued to go back and forth. Uh, and then again, we bought a house in the early 70s where my wife, Rebecca, and I were married. Uh, and then we sold that because there was no work for somebody like me. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, about 25 years after that, we decided to come back and we purchased a, a property and they published the transactions in the paper. And I'd really been out of touch all that time. And I get this email the morning after the public uh, the paper comes out and it says, we see you're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because it gets to my next uh, question. There was It was kind of reading the book. It's clear... I couldn't think of you simply as an anthropologist who sort of parachuted into the community. Is obviously you had some sort of you were you're accepted on some level on some level as a local, um, and on some level I I stress uh, when you've got people who are Major Jones after the you know the tenth generation of Major Jones is obviously that's it's it's complex it's a complex belonging. But you want to talk to that? Uh, sure. Is that um, I wasn't born there. I didn't have a lot to say about it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, my association connections uh, with the Eastern Shore of Virginia are a lifetime's worth. Uh, intermittent, um, interrupted, uh, but they're nonetheless. And I knew folks uh, when I came back uh, uh, 
this last time um, and uh, told folks was meeting uh, about our life there early on uh, and who our neighbors were and uh, what we did. Uh, and folks, uh, folks and, uh, were very open and uh, interested in conversations, and that's what we uh, what we did. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, I'm from away, as they would say, uh, <laughs> but I am also come back in a particular kind of way. So I have a an odd status. You're an amphibian. Um, <laughs> what is uh, what is a folklorist, and how do, how does one how does how does one get to be a folklorist? I mean, it's part of what you do. It's not the only thing you do, as I understand it. Right. Well, I'm trained as a folklorist, and um, what folklorists do is work on the full array of everyday life and uh, uh, social interactions, artistic interactions between people. And the definition of what constitutes artistic is about as generous as it gets. It goes from everything um, such as uh, what people would call folk art, which is unfortunate term in its own right. Uh, but um, in that sort of um, gallery sense, all the way through to gardens, to conversation, uh, to uh, work, all these areas of human exploration. So that's what we're interested in. And the reason I went into folklore was it was not driven by a topic, mm -hmm. um, but rather driven by uh, a set of ideas and the fullest array of um, approaches that one could take to uh, working with communities, respecting communities, and bringing forward the voice of folks and communities in ways that really spoke to uh, the beauties of place. So some people are going to listen to that and say, well, that sounds a lot like history, but it's not. Um, and I know that the late, great Charles Joyner tried to make a place in historical study for folklore studies. I'm not sure he was unfortunately i don't think he was as successful as he uh, set out to be uh so what's the what's the dichotomy what's the i suspect there's more uh there's more of a problem on the historian side than the folklorist side but what's the difference between the two between well we're all interested in human behavior at some level if i was uh painted into a corner to draw a distinction um I would say it's the kind of questions that we ask of uh, the past, whether recent or distant. Uh, also, historical narratives, by and large, tend to look at change over time. Uh, and folklorists are uh, very much committed to looking at uh, interaction, uh, the ways in which people relate to one another without necessarily uh, turning to uh, a linear narrative or mm -hmm. a narrative of, uh, of shift across the year. Yeah, I think there's a suspicion among some historians that um, historians who are too interested in folklore stories are essentialists. They're not interested, they're not enough historicists. That they are too, they're too interested in things, in, in the connections of things to the past as if things don't change. And that's kind of heretical. 
If you, if you're well, a... there are some historians who I really take as models, um, whose work really, I think, reaches across disciplines. I example of Robert Darnton's The Great Cat Massacre, uh -huh. or just about anything written by Natalie Zeman Davis, uh, or members of the French School of Cultural History that evolved out of the Annals. Uh -huh. um, those individuals uh, really were looking at uh, a kind of a big history uh, that spoke to the very uh, sin and bone of human relationship. Uh, I don't think of this as necessarily essentialist. I think it's a concern with what the French call mentalité, which is the mind of a place and a time. And I think that's where folklore and history really come together in productive ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so how do you go about doing it? I mean, when you, you, you told people what you're up to and people are interested, this is the product of a lot of years, I take it. You've been doing other things whilst continuing to plug away at this. You, you, there are no dates in the book about when events happen. Oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> and there's... <laughs> um, I got the idea to start pulling together this collection of essays into a book, oh, about... 10 to 12 years ago. And the reason was that looking at the Eastern shore of Virginia, which has a struggling economy yeah. uh, over years, uh, it has lost population every census since 1930 uh, with a more dramatic loss uh, forecast uh, over the next 15 years. Um, and it has um, a, a kind of safety net infrastructure, which is uh, perennially vulnerable. Uh, and so I began to think, what does sustainable economic development look like for a place like the Eastern Shore? Uh, and what it looks like is what folks do best. Uh, I have a friend, Sandy Lloyd, who convenes people for museum interpretation planning. And we all were the property. And then she sits this down and she says, what song does this place sing best? <laughs> and I thought about what song does Eastern Shore of Virginia sing best? And its song is about food, about fishing, about conversation, uh, about family. Uh, and so that path I chose uh, to take. Uh, at the same time, working in a very practical way with a group of folks, uh, there were originally four of us and then five, uh, to create something called Eastern Shore Virginia Foodways, which has a mission, uh, which is one job for one person so one family uh, doesn't have to leave um, uh, because of the, you know, the lack of jobs or meaningful work. And so that's in part where this book came from. You know, my task, uh, because of the, I guess, their skills, the skill set that I bring to this, uh, was to really begin to tell the story. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm a channel for the voices of that place. Uh, and folks asked, congratulations, book. And I said, I always say is that, you know, I was the person who was the lucky one to be the listener uh, and was trusted enough to write this down. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why that book is filled with the voices of so many people um, and why it comes 
place. I, w- I wanted to let's let's hit this now. I've been thinking about talking about this later. Um, it's the trust is important, isn't it? Um, there is in places like well. So I just wrote a biography about a. a, a, a famous, maybe the most famous resident of Winchester, Virginia. And in Winchester, people say to me, so are you from around here? Uh, Because they can't conceive that anyone who knows about Daniel Morgan or is interested in Daniel Morgan wouldn't actually be from Winchester. So there's a sort of, uh, some people might see this as clannishness. I see it as sort of an interesting modesty that you find in small out of the way places. Um, Why would you be interested in what we do? You know, why would you be interested in what in our way of life? Um, you know, I grew up with that uh, in in southwestern in south along the Delaware Bay of South Jersey. If if did this project now in Western Cumberland County or Salem County, why would you be interested in us? Why would you be? Why would you want to do this? Um, that's a, it's an, always an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Um, yeah, I didn't have that experience, um, folks were interested that I was interested yeah. rather than curious about my motives for being interested. Uh, but there were things that I did in putting together this project. I would write pieces of it and then would take drafts hmm. to uh, places like the Bayford Oyster House or or Pede's Garage Kitchen uh, and these, um, and then they would offer editorial comment. Um, and cause I wanted to be sure that I got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that, um, so that, uh, it was not a question so much of, of why, but a question of how, mm-hmm. um, once folks, uh, I think realized that, you know, a, that I was serious and that B that I really, um, wanted to do this in consultation, uh, and in collaboration, um, uh, and in friendship with the folks that I got to meet over time, I think at that point it became um, an enterprise uh, that was one that was broadly shared than individually owned. Yeah, that's that's lovely. So you talk about terroir. Uh, what is it? What do you mean by it? And what is the terroir of the Eastern Shore of Virginia? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, terroir and its most limited. Is actually a French legal um, is it? term uh, that recognizes the taste of place huh. uh, and that uh, is tightly linked things like wine, sausage, cheese, uh, and a kind of proprietary identity about place and got appropriated into general language as this idea of taste of place. But what really interested me about this is that it involves the to understand the taste of place. You have to eat it or drink it, uh, and when you eat or drink terroir, you make it yourself. <laughs> uh, and so I was very interested in this kind, of most literal embodied history, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of uh, connection uh, through um, conversation and habit and convention. You, you write, when people speak about terroir, they speak about themselves. Absolutely. It's where, uh, where, where, we, where we're ingesting that place that we call home. Right. Or ingesting somebody else's home. Yes. 
because that's where connoisseurship uh, steps in because people always talk about the taste of place, people who are from away in ways that sort of say, um, it's why we have a kind of anxiety of authenticity uh, is that through uh, the sampling of other places, of literally absorbing them into our bodies, uh, is that somehow we become more authentic. Hmm. Um, Actually, we just become uh, more curious, I think, would be the the best outcome. Or uh, or just move on. But I think the terroir is about really um, consuming and understanding a place uh, that then uh, becomes a larger sensibility. Mm-hmm. What do you mean, you write, terroir maps a point where nostalgia, longing for an imagined past, and desire, longing for an imagined future, combine. That's a great sentence. What, is, <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> well, um, I think of nostalgia as looking back in ways that idealize and romanticize and uh, sometimes eyes uh, the past mm. uh, and bring it forward is uh, the uh, geographer David Lowenthal uh, identified the past as the single greatest tourist destination. Uh, and I agree with that. Um, and when we look to the past, we come forward uh, with this kind of idealized vision. Um, mm. But we're looking from a particular moment. Desire, on the other hand, is where we Want to get to. Um, it's a kind of destination that actually can never be uh, satisfied. Uh, and so um, I really see terroirs between memory and on the one hand, uh, and also a projection mm-hmm. uh, toward um, uh, identity and engagement on the other. As you work out this idea of Torah in the book, it, it seems to me that there's, a, we're getting, this is getting philosophically deep in ways I hadn't intended, uh, that Torah can mediate nostalgia and desire in some ways that ameliorates the bad, the, the bad effects of both. I mean, nostalgia is just simply, I mean, this is Odysseus. Um, the rest of the tales lost or, or uh, of the returning Greeks from the Trojan War, they're the Nostoi. They're trying, they're returning home. They're fueled by their memory of their home as it was 10 years before, 20 years before. Uh, and yet also they, they desire to return to their, their Nostos, their, to, the, to their home. It's a, it's a powerful concept when you think of it that way. And terroir in some sense mediates between those two things. Um, I think so. It's also can be used as a kind of vantage point mm. for studying community. Yeah. In fact, what we are after is a kind of appreciation and comprehension of this uh, of place. And even when it's reading court records, that's a kind of consumption. That's a kind of uh, uh, bringing it into one's own social imaginary and making it of a present position. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got something like uh, 10, what, 18 different uh, chapters, and I'd like to go through them all, but I can, we can only sample, as it were, uh, a few. Let's talk about marsh hens, because this reminded me when I read it, you talked about, uh, because it, where I grew up, people used to go after marsh hens. Uh, I don't know of anyone who hunts marsh hens now, 
but it, it's a lovely way of thinking about um, it's a lovely way of thinking about the distinction between what you described briefly as the ocean side and the bay side of the, of the eastern shore. So, what is a marsh hen? First of all, uh, marsh is uh, Virginia rail or clap rail. It's a kind of shorebird that lives in salt marsh, um, and uh, they lay their eggs out. At, um, is at particularly high tides, uh, their nests will be disrupted and uh, all the eggs will float together. But they are a bird um, that really is, I like them, they're very, I mean, I like them as an animal, they're really quite beautiful. Uh, I like them as an entree too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a bird that um, congregates at unusually high tides yeah. uh, in areas called tumps, uh, which are these raised areas, vast marshes. Um, and so when they are there is hunters uh, will push up on them or sneak up on them and um, they will take to the air. And uh, they still shoot them uh, for food down on the eastern shore of Virginia as well as Carolina and other southern coastal community, uh, it, but it's an indigenous bird. And it used to be a big business hunting them. That was uh, t- guiding uh, people to those re- the the marsh hen hunts, uh, reed bird hunts. That was a big deal, um, and that's all sort of disappeared. I know it's disappeared along the Delaware Bay. I, I, I it's disappeared along the Chesapeake too. I, I reckon. Um, there's well, you're talking about the golden age sure. Victorian hunting, and that is gone. Yeah. Um, the most shorebirds, it's illegal to hunt since the passage of the Lacey Act, um, and many other species are protected. Habitat, um, some overhunting, has really decimated populations. Um, so that um, what happens now is not even the pale shadow of what sports hunting was in the, the sure age. yeah it's for for good and bad 20th century but there is still yeah go on yeah there's still a, there's still guides who take people out huh. um and there's still uh folks who uh organize rigs so there are still a few folks who make working rigs of decoys uh, hmm. for other kinds of birds i uh i mean w- I got a picture on my wall of um, guys uh, pulling a, a, a skiff in Mannington Meadow. Uh, uh, sur- they're servicing a muskrat trap. But uh, the whole point of, uh, of marsh hens, of hunting them, is that you have to pull your skiff along these little channels through the marsh. Uh, in your story that you tell, there's a lot of illegality because they're using, they're using outboards, which is, uh, you're not supposed to do in the marsh. Uh, that was, that's part of the, 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 the old, the hunting stories are full of that, right? I mean, using the outboard and being chased by the fishing game and stuff like that. What does that, what does that story, what, what did marsh hen, what does that story bring out for you about the terroir of the Eastern Shore? What's that, what, what does that, story do for you in advancing this notion of terroir um stories are just part of um the taste of place Uh actually central to the taste of place uh and folks will uh tell uh these anecdotes and histories uh always in ways that um are intended to uh uh entertain and instruct uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, some of these stories are really 
about reminiscence, but they carry a larger measure, uh, measure of of the teller with the place, share with the listener. Um, and uh, you talk about folks that um, go out there. And yes, there are folks who will still go out there and push up with the uh, under outboard and the, um, uh, the wardens get after them. Uh, and some of that still goes on. But the uh, the extent of that is uh, much diminished. Uh, mm. In the well, it's interesting when you when you read enough of the stories in this book, um, the South you never ate. You start to see the overlaps between the two. So you see the repeated references to he's a Hog Islander, even though I know that Hog Island hasn't been inhabited since the 1930s. You know these people are still distinguished as such, and that they have a certain they have a certain cultural competence or cunningness, you know, or what have you, um, and so on. You start to see that you start uh, each story adds much more than just another story to the book. As the as the various stories begin, to, you feel that you're in a web of stories which cover this place and add to your understanding of the terroir. Actually. Um, I guess that was your intent, but that might have just been how the things worked out. No, is it? Um, it's a place that is defined by stories within stories. So that's why <laughs> I start with the one about black dumplings, uh, which begins with a uh, the gift of a pair of barely legal black ducks, as it was described to me, uh, and evolves through all these associations and stories. Some going all the way back to the. Uh, 1930s mm -hmm. uh, that come forward. That's how it works. It is always a skein of stories. Yeah. It is always uh, a fabric that mm -hmm. is uh, of connections and yeah. that bring people together. One story is uh, and it always brings out another. I was just talking to folks about terrapins uh, and uh, the terrapin stories are really pretty amazing uh, mm -hmm. particularly since we terrapin anymore. Mm -hmm. No, um, the uh, what was that? Winfield Scott was quite the greatest uh, food vouchsafed to man, something like that. Um, Mr. Heyman's sweet potatoes. Heyman's sweet potatoes. As I, I believe that shows up in a Tom Wolfe novel as an example of conspicuous consumption. The Heyman's sweet potato. Although I th suspect he might be recalling his 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 uh, being a teenager in Richmond, uh, Virginia. Um, but. People have heard of the Heyman sweet potatoes. What is it, and why is it important to the Eastern Shore? Well, distinction is always important as folks uh, talk through identity and cook through and eat identity, which is back to terroir. Uh, but the Heyman is uh, out of the Caribbean. David Shields, uh, who wrote the Culinarians and Southern Visions, did a fabulous job of tracking uh, the Heyman. But it appears in the 1850s in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, that's brought by a uh, schooner captain coming out of the West Indies uh, and enters into cultivation. Um, it is about the ugliest sweet potato uh, that you define, but it is so saturated with sugars that when it cures, it leaks black sugars. Um, mm. People don't know them, think they've gone bad but it means that they are ready to cook. Uh, they travel, they get uh, through southeastern Virginia, northeastern North Carolina, uh, and eastern shore, which has very sandy soils, 
and they thrive there. One point, as Dave Shields points out, is that uh, they were so popular for northern markets, they were called the Southern Queen, um, and that has dropped out of um, uh, mm-hmm. out of usage. Uh, but it's a low yield, comparatively, sweet potatoes, so that an acre of Haymans will uh, roughly half of, say, an acre of Beauregards or any mm-hmm. of the other more recent hybrids. Uh, and productivity, oh, appearance, they don't travel well. All these things worked against and um, they really sort of slipped from the American table. Uh, but folks continue to grow and really um, love them there. And they are very, very tightly associated with an Eastern Shore identity, like clam fritters or black duck and dumpling or oyster pie. What's uh, so it, they're very sweet. They're ugly. What do they taste like? Are they are they like what I grew up with is something called Jersey Whites, uh, which we thought to be much better to every other sweet potato. And that was uh, they are white or yellow sweet potatoes. Uh, they do ooze black sugar sometimes, but they're also very dry and nutty. They're almost like a chestnut to, to eat. Uh, mm-hmm. I love them above most things. Um, what's, what's a Heyman like? Uh, Heyman is um, very dense, mm. very sweet, um, and um, uh, has almost a kind of fiber quality to it um, if it's not properly cooked. What they're like to me is uh, the taste. I mean, is that I can't divorce the flavor of the Haman from uh, the air and the soil of the (laughs) Eastern Shore. I bite into one of these, you know, and it tastes like uh, Mr. Harmon's Fields, Mm -hmm. or it tastes like W.T. Nottingham's Farm. Uh, It tastes like... um, Oh, uh, Jeanette Spady talking about pomegranate jelly. Mm-hmm. What's up? We, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated too. I remember encountering the clam fritter as a kid in Chincoteague or somewhere and saying, wow, that's cool. Cause we didn't have that. We had, we had clam pie, but clam fritter. I was, what's a, what's a clam fritter? Just uh, help people out here. Cause we had, we had, um, fritter, we had fritters in abundance of various kinds. But this was a new one on me. Oh, well, a clam fritter, well, it's just part of the fritter family. Which yeah. to the crab cake um, is a kind of fritter. Yeah. Uh, but these are like little pancakes. Uh, the best ones are uh, small and thin and uh, crispy around the edges. But what they involve is uh, taking clams, uh, chowder clams, uh, shucking them, mincing them. You'd never put them through a, a food processor. You can hand grind them um, and then stirring them into this batter. And the clam fritters you get at a carnival uh, on the eastern shore or up a chain tend to be bigger and thicker, like yeah. a fluffy biscuit and cake. Uh, and those are called carnival fritters by a lot of folks on the eastern shore of Virginia. And then the home fritters are the uh, very often these smaller, uh, much clammier uh, uh-huh. uh, 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 preparation. Uh, but folks would take clam fritters and uh, make sandwiches with them. Yeah. So you want to think about a 
sandwich. <laughs> I, that's that's what I had for the first time. That's I was like, this is I, of course as if you're seven years old, you think this is the best thing ever. It's like a pancakes on a sandwich, you know. It's but with clams. With yellow mustard. Yes, that's right. With yellow mustard. Um, what uh, you should probably explain also clams. People are going to say, what aren't clams like? Little, they're thinking of cherry stone clams, but these aren't the clams that these guys were digging up. And where, where did they, where did they go clamming? And did, can you describe that briefly? Because it's a great little part. It's a great little part of the story. I want to let's talk about how they actually get those clams out. You know, long before oh, okay. they eat them. Well, there, um, there's a history that really is a history of change. Yeah. Uh, the clams that you're talking about, cherry stones, uh, little necks, middle necks, they're all the same clam. Uh, and they were just about fished out. Uh, historically, folks would go out onto the uh, grounds, which would be oh, anywhere from you know, two to seven miles out uh, between the barrier islands of Virginia and the high ground. Uh, and there would be huge low tide and you would go up onto these flats um, and you could either sign them which is you would look for the evidence either in a breathing hole or a little depression and you could rake them out uh, or you would uh, go wading um, in waist to chest deep water and you can feel the difference um, between clams and other shells uh, and even live clams and dead clams with your toes and then would dig up uh, um, as well, either with a clam pick or some folks could actually get them out with their toes uh, and throw. Well, when the clam populations, the native population was uh, depleted, uh, there were some real innovators, um, you know, the Terry's, uh, uh, the Walkers, uh, and others uh, working at with the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, who figured out you could uh, propagate and clams. And so now uh, they're farmed under nets in the tens of thousands, uh, mm. and they get uniform size. They still are all grown out in that U-designated coastal reserve, and so they're absolutely clean. But a modest grower, somebody sort of in the middle, might grow oh, 8 to 10 million clams a year. Um, and it is the largest clam producing ground uh, on the planet. Wow. So that's one of the things keeping uh, the Eastern Shore economy alive, although it doesn't require anything like the number of people it required in the past. Uh, it's very labor intensive at times okay. here. Um, and you can have real issues. For example, if you get heavy ice, um, you can uh, have a clam ground really torn up or uh, in the wake of a big storm in northeast or hurricane uh, is a clam ground can get buried. And that's the end of that. Mm -hmm. uh, oysters also are very labor intensive, mm -hmm. uh, but they're able to grow in such volume that even though it's labor intensive, the number of jobs is um, you know, is huge it tends to be uh, pretty uh still small scale mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um let's talk about the, the watchapri fireman's carnival um you had mentioned in fact carnival fritters so uh is this what is the what what is the watchapri fireman's carnival and why did you include it in the book oh well the 
I wanted to talk about uh, the places that people hold in great affection and the events. It's not just sitting down at your table at night with a clam fritter or with uh, a soft shell crab or two something like that. Um, there are all of these occasions where people come together. The Bayford Oyster House Bash, Theodore Pede's Turtle Park. Mm -hmm. And then there are things like the fire companies. They're volunteer fire companies, and so they have to raise funds. <laughs> and there used to be festivals in almost all the little towns up and down um, the uh, peninsula. And it would be carnival rides, small scale, uh, and then concessions, you know, little booths, like a midway where you would mm -hmm. play games. Uh, and Wachapreg and Chincoteague are the last two. Uh, but Wachapreg, it's almost into a kind of a homecoming. Uh, and uh, folks come from uh, away, people whose families once lived there, come back. Uh, and one of the mainstays was the cake wheel. Uh, and what, what this is, was a what is <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, after all, the, the Chicotee Volunteer Fire Department has pony penning. That is actually people. If people know about that's actually the Volunteer Fire Department's fundraiser. Um, Watch a Prague has a cake wheel. I, I, it's, it's a different. It's a different approach. <laughs> but what uh, it is. But it's also one that brings in a much broader uh, community huh. uh, engagement. So the way uh, has used to work was it was just watch a prank. This is years ago in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Uh, and uh, folks in the community, mostly women, would make cakes and they would carry a cake to the carnival and they would put it in the um, little concession, which was the cake wheel, which was a 40 numbers on it. Uh, the course, uh, course, 40 numbers on a mat. Uh, and you would lay down a quarter or 50 cents on a square, uh, and they would spin the wheel. And if your number came up, you got a, you got your choice of uh -huh. the cake. And, of course, there were really legendary bakers in this community. Uh, and so folks would come to play for a cake. Um, when they won, uh, there are folks who remember seeing people walk through the carnival carrying this prize cake <laughs> uh, to the envy of uh, others. Um, as Watch a Prey, he had to cover more and more ground outside of town. Other towns and communities began to uh, bring their cakes to Watch a Prey. Uh, and so there would be be night uh, from the little uh, fishing village of Quinby or a group from X Neck or uh, some other place like that. And now it became uh, even more complicated. You wanted to be there on the night that your community's cakes were <laughs> being, uh, 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 put on offer. Uh, and uh, I've seen people drop um, a roll of quarters in the course of an evening and come up empty-handed. Uh, and then I've seen other folks uh, put down uh, their 50 cents um, or whatever on that number, and that number came up on the first time, and they were out of there. <laughs> um, so the Eastern Shore has, um, it's, uh, we shouldn't, 
get the impression that it's uh, in amber or glass, under glass. It has continued to change throughout its history. Uh, the most recent change has been the influx of, I think, chiefly Mexican uh, workers or uh, immigrants to the Eastern Shore. Did that begin because of Purdue and, and, and then Tyson? Because the, I know that there's a heavy um, influx to work in the chicken factories up in 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 the northern part of, of the Delmarva. Is that right? Um, there is up there. They Because um, they worship. Uh, the, workers as, from Latin America also came in to do crab picking. Okay. Um, they're... There are a lot of jobs um, that are seasonal yeah. and require labor. Uh, it's a big issue um, mm -hmm. in uh, agriculture. And so uh, folks came to the eastern shore of Virginia in search of, of work and of economic opportunity. Yep. Um, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily link the presence of folks on the eastern shore of Virginia to poultry so much as to rural labor. Yeah, that's that's but I, I it is the you say somewhere in the book that um, say Accomack County worships the, the chicken processing. Um, that's that seems to end. And if you drive down 13, um, it's inescapable. Uh, and and in lots of rural communities so where I where I grew up as well, um, such jobs, of course, when I was a child were being done by local people. And gradually, we had an uh, we had an you have an influx of migrant labor to do these sorts of agricultural jobs. Um, well, I mean, even I don't know what this was, but everyone would around in seventh grade, you get your social security number so you could pick peppers. Um, you know, I'm sure that in Western Cumberland County, New Jersey, 13 year olds no longer pick peppers. Um, I'm pretty sure of that. Um, things have changed in, in that in terms of labor and the way it's seen. Um, I would I would agree. Um, certainly, uh, the example our way would be strawberries. Yeah. And historically, strawberry came in. Everybody came out. There were basically two, three weeks to get that crop in. Uh, and so kids would pick before school. Mm -hmm. uh, entire families would get out there. Uh, but what it comes down to, is uh, American consumers at the end of the day do not want to pay what it actually costs to grow food. Um, yep. And labor uh, costs rose um, and uh, their real cost of food rose, uh, but the market uh, would only bear so much increase. Uh, and so folks begin to monoculture and to other forms of farming yep. go to the grocery store and we see is that actually the bulk of produce comes in uh, from uh, uh, South America and Latin America mm -hmm. and Mexico uh, and that's uh, that's a real issue um, the old labor crews uh, that were predominantly African-American gave way to um, uh, the most recent uh, iteration of a uh, rural workforce, which is largely Spanish-speaking. Uh, but it's um, a mistake to think of Mexican. Uh, yeah, that's true. Really Latin American. And one of the most interesting things that's arisen in the 
world that I've looked at is how folks from all these very distinct regions of uh, uh, Mexico and Central America have brought their own food customs, mm-hmm. and food practices uh, to this area, and then uh, they begin uh, exchange ideas, yeah, uh, like the gordita. Uh, but there are folks from Chiapas, uh, folks from Oaxaca, folks from um, oh, Michoacan is uh, is a large uh, group. Okay. Yeah, and there are folks of Veracruz. Yep. I mean, all these areas are represented. Many of the folks who hail from those areas actually spent considerable amount of time along the northern border mm-hmm. working in uh, American industries that were being um, operated out of yeah. northern Mexico. And I know in other, in other places, of course, in, in southern New Jersey these days, I suspect the largest percentage is actually people from, from the Dominican Republic. Uh, um, We're not seeing much of that. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about Bengue de Camarones, which is, is sounds exotic when I put it like that, but in other ways is very much related to the clam fritter. Uh, yeah. There's a certain talk about the, the cake, yeah, the, the, cake. the slow bake, the it's, slow bake. Um, it's, it's an fritter. approach. It's, a, it's an approach to fritters as in a way. Yeah, they're quite wonderful. Those came uh, into the community through um, uh, oyster workers uh, who came from the uh, coast of Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a fritter that they would make um, at home and would put in their or wrap up in some way and take out onto the uh, fishery, uh, the Mexican fishery. Uh, And they brought that back. Mm-hmm. Um, or brought that here with them, but it's not everywhere. It's you know, particularly the Oaxacan uh, huh. fishery community that makes these things. Uh, but others, uh, different uh, different sorts of dishes. Uh, still, we see a coming together of certain practices, yeah. uh, and is is become the great sort of synthesis. Huh. Um, American food ways. It's really limited in its range and style to particular areas of uh, Mexico um, and uh, Honduras and the areas around the northern reaches of Latin America, but or Central America. But as it uh, arrived here, more and more folks began to pick it up. So I was actually <laughs> in the food truck kitchen with a person who was making gorditas. And so I asked the question, so I said, oh, how'd you learn to make these? I think I was going to get like this great narrative of, you know, grandmom and growing yeah. up. He says, he says, well, I had these when I worked at an auto plant <laughs> in Mexico and really liked them. So I went on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's tradition. Tradition's the cultural process of making sense. Yeah. It's the perfect example. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about a very different tradition is Theodore Pete's Turtle Party, which is, uh, is uh, which I, lo- I mean, I, I, I fixed upon because it involves turtles and not many people eat turtles anymore. Even I grew up with snapper soup, but it was from a can. Um I know people have eaten fried snapper. I know people who catch snapper, but I've never actually had fried snapper. But Theodore Pete is continuing a, a multiple traditions in his garage. Yeah, you referred to it earlier as a garage kitchen. 
which I like for I like that I like that description. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> you know, it's uh, put together with a homemade burner and uh, little propane tanks and uh, coolers and a refrigerator uh, and a freezer. And uh, folks come there and they sit at the table and uh, watch games or whatever happens to be on the television. And Mr. Pede might make neck bones and beans or else and uh, uh, once a year he uh, pulls together the uh, turtle party uh, that is something that he invites his friends to uh, and it's a uh, also he also has described it as a wild game party but turtles why you go but, um, so what what people are saying what the what turtle wait what 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 kind of turtle is he eating why would he do that um, can you describe that for people who haven't had the pleasure? Oh, sure. Uh, it's snapping turtles, um, and they are in abundance where we are. Um, and every year, uh, we'll contribute uh, anywhere from a dozen um, to maybe two dozen turtles over the course of the year, uh, turtles that they have found in their garden their doorstep or in their duck pond or place uh, and Mr. Pede will um, uh, slaughter them and dress them put them aside uh, and then when there is a sufficient supply of turtles to feed a hundred or so guests uh, which is always uh, in early October then um, the turtle party happens along with other things like uh, venison barbecue, uh, which is a sort of a new tradition because I remember when there were no deer on the eastern shore yeah. of Virginia, uh, and now they're everywhere. Now they're everywhere. Um, That's yeah, a great idea. It's problematic. Yeah, problem. It's uh, interesting. I mean, there are very complex regulations that make it difficult to um, harvest both deer and um deer and turtle snappers for commercial sale, which is interesting because Charlottesville, we could have quite a market. We could supply all the grocery stores with plenty of deer venison for a long time. And I think barbecue venison is a great idea. It's a technique that's perfect for venison. But um, as you say, there's an abundance of snappers. They are not pressured anymore. They have a lot of food. What I love about uh, the idea of cooking snappers is... Um, Snappers are always, if you grow up in a place like the Eastern Shore, they're always there. You just can't see them most of the time. They're, but they're like three feet away from you, from your, under your boat. They're like, they're off the dock. They're always hanging out. You, you can watch a baby duck disappear, you know, from behind mama duck. You know, there's a snapper, probably a bass, but maybe a snapper too that's just had lunch. Um, snappers are always, they are part of, they're an intimate part of the terroir. Uh, a hidden part of the terroir that's always there um, on the border of, of water and land and water. Absolutely. Um, same way as terrapins or marshens. Yeah, exactly. Um, all these things uh, occupy these kinds of full ecological thresholds. Uh, and actually, I should point out is that snapper is still uh, taken and uh, eaten up in the Delaware Bay, uh, Delaware Bay, particularly in Salem, 
I know. And then across in uh, Kenton, uh, Newcastle counties. Yeah, I know, but not not enough. Not many people make it. And I wish I wish you wish for some people you could actually buy it in the market. I mean, you can't really. It's it's hard to find in the market these days. Um, uh, you used to be able to get it in the um, fish markets, but those have started. To, those began to disappear. Even the fish markets began began to disappear. Um, let's talk about sister. Let's finish up by talking about menus. You have a wonderful, it's one of my favorite chapters, actually. Uh, you talk about the art of the menu. Uh, and also it's uh, Sister Edmonds at the Glorious Church of Jesus Christ in Onancock and the menus that she writes. And that gets into really a very deep meditation on, on, on what menus are all about. Um, what, are, what do menus tell us? Menus are lists of ingredients and dish and dish but they are also because they can contain multiple so that you would get uh, from sister Edmonds you would get oh uh, fried fried for example and stewed beans and something cornbread is that there's a space between each of those ingredients. And so what menus really reveal are the connections. We tend to think about things in isolated terms of genre, uh, typology of food. Here are the fritters, here are the breads, here are the meats, uh, here are the fishes. Uh, but what a menu does is it speaks to combination and ways to bring things together. Uh, and I look at those menus and uh, I look at uh, what's on the plate. And after all of this, every time I look down is I see these deep histories of uh, this place and actually global flows. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of things like, oh, um, I mentioned this earlier, uh, terrapin stew, which you would never see on a menu these Mm-mm. days. No. But terrapin are an indigenous uh, animal. Um, they were eaten by indigenous peoples before the arrival of Europeans and Africans. But terrapin stew, as we know it, is something that could not exist without the intersection of worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, The dairy, the kind of dairy that goes in uh, was European. There were no uh, cows or uh, dairy animals. People ate uh, nut milks before uh, or what we would think of as nut milks before the arrival of uh, European livestock. Uh, you start to think about some of the spice profiles. Think about Madeira. Uh, and all of a sudden you're now into uh, port- Portuguese um, uh, and, uh, and then port and all these ingredients. Uh, and so that every plate, every menu is a kind of snack of the deep histories of the worlds that we occupy and that we eat. And so I pick these up. I look at them. They're about city. They're about place. uh, But they're also about how we, at the most intimate and basic level, connect ourselves to these big histories uh, and identities. You said um, your friend Spike, um, who's a chef, I believe, um, he says that uh, he says me- he locates me- uh, Sister Emmons' menu not just in a geographic locale, but also within a constellation of shared understanding 
there's as much about community as it is about food. I think a constellation of shared understanding is a pretty nice definition of culture. Um, he also writes, he also says, a menu like that without a lot of explanation or narrative was possible when traditions were stronger and still intact. In other words, when the culture was very cohesive and required very little explanation to those who were sharing eating of it. Well, um, Spike Gertie, who's uh, uh, would uh, has Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore, yes. uh, is an extraordinary chef. Um, and I agree with him to a point about shared understanding. Yeah. Um, but it would be a mistake to think in terms of declension uh, huh. around the foodways of the Eastern Virgin. That community is vibrant. Those menus don't need a lot of explanation today for folks who inhabit that world and those relationships. Uh, folks who come to this from um, outside those relationships uh, might require some translation. What the menu does uh, is two pieces of very important work. On the one hand, um, Sister Edmund's menu uh, is a medium for cohesion. It's a coming together of understanding and sensibility. Mm -hmm. It's also a vehicle for drawing a line of difference. Uh, and it's important to think that terroir is not about just about the taste of place. It's also about the taste of time, mm -hmm. it's the taste of community, uh, and the taste of class and, and race and all of these other histories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> you, um, it's also an expression of love. Well, this book was written with a lot of affection in mind. I can yeah, tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. Uh, this is a. Uh, we're coming to the end of a long conversation, so I, this is very purposefully. We're recording this conversation. It's going. The podcast is going to drop the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and that was very explicit. After I, I, I thought when I saw the notice of the book, I thought oh, I think I found a Thanksgiving book, um, and I realized yes, I have. Um, not because I don't think Thanksgiving is even mentioned. Um, I'm not making any claims about Virginia having the first Thanksgiving. Of course it did. But I mean, it's that, that's not neither here nor there. The, the point is, is that this is about communities feeding at home. Uh, it is in many ways. This book gets to the very depth of the very curious American celebration of Thanksgiving. Um, a lot of people who are listening to this will be going to that place they call home. Um, and so I wanted to end with a few questions to you as a, a person who is devoted to distinguishing terroir, um, and devoted to a certain place that you call home. Um, it's often very difficult for us to recognize our own terroir. Um, we're like the, the fish who don't realize they're in water. Um, <laughs> So how might we begin to recognize our own terroir? I, I won't ask you how might we begin to appreciate it. No one can really give a, a proper answer to that. But how might we begin to recognize it? I think that you, I think the answer is very simple. Uh, approach the world you eat with thoughtfulness. Hmm. Um, and... Look at what's in front of you. Look at what goes into making what is in front of you. Uh, look at uh, what your friends and community are doing uh, and think about that in a 
self-aware way is to look at this and say, you know, we do this, this means something to us, so how and what does it mean? Um, you know, how does a, a sweet potato pie carry forward all of those relationships and all of those uh, uh, affections mm -hmm. uh, and sensibilities? So for me, simply to approach the worlds that we inhabit with thought. Mm -hmm. I, I... And then eat it. <laughs> yeah, and then eat it. I was thinking as as we were as I was writing those questions, I was thinking that the approach is is, is best exemplified by the youngest child at Passover, right? Why is this night different from all other nights? Um, why do we do in this family in this place? Why do we do this thing? Um, there's a a certain point in a person's life, especially in a, perhaps in a modern consumer society, where one is irritated. This is about when you're 13 or 14, that you're doing something different than other people. And you want it to be the same as your friend's family or something like that. At some point, you come back and say, why do we, maybe if you're lucky, you come back and say, so why do we do it different than other people? And sometimes there's not an obvious answer. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you do it differently because don't think of it as differently until you're thinking of it in the context of somebody else. But ultimately, you do it in the way, the style you do it, because that's who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this requires us to then act as folklorists in our own family. Um, and to... Uh, uh, I would agree. Yeah. Um, which I, I, we talked to with uh, Rachel Loudon a couple of years ago. I think we, we concluded talking with this. She had been doing a food history. But there's a way in which uh, we have these recipes that are associated. There are a lot of people who do genealogy, but don't think of it as being related to sort of the family cookbook. But it's intimately related to the family cookbook. And it requires us to act as, as listen, questioners and listeners in recording those conversations. I agree. You know, photo albums, um, or now you would have digital photo albums, but they do that kind of work in much the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember very vividly watching Kellum Dowdy tell the story of his family by opening up a shoebox of photographs and then putting them in the order of the narrative. Sonny scooped them all back, put them in the box, and then began a different story, pulled the box back over and got out the photos and put them in a different order. That's beautiful. Uh, and I think that's what. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful idea. Um, what? Um, any other final thoughts on on how we might uh, think of Thanksgiving differently? Uh, about how we might think of things differently. Of Thanksgiving uh, differently. Think, oh, uh, I think that we always do well to think about. Um, Thanksgiving in its larger historical context that even as it's a, it's a reminder of uh, whose land we're on, um, it's also uh, should be a reminder of um, how we might give thanks for being able to do something for somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly one of those holidays in the popular imaginary uh, matches uh, Oscar Wilde's uh, this dictum that uh, nothing succeeds like excess. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there's something that's really carnivalesque in excess. It's a kind of turning of 
things upside down. It's the uh, exceptional um, uh, celebration, uh, but it also reminds us in its excesses of the larger kind of responsibilities we have to uh, neighbors, friends, family, and community. My guest today has been Bernie Herman. He's the, the author of A South You Never Ate, Savoring Flavors and Stories from the Eastern Shore of Virginia. Uh, Bernie, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Well, thank you. I'm glad you liked the book. And, uh, you know, the next time you're out there on the marshes of Mannington Meadow, you know, think about the marshes of the Eastern Shore. I will. Thanks so much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.